then you don't just need to sprinkle it on your food. You can just eat it right out of the can. And he takes what's left in the can and he empties it into his mouth and he eats it. Now, if you know anything about Copenhagen, you know that you wouldn't want to eat it. You really shouldn't chew it, but you certainly wouldn't want to ingest Copenhagen. And so everybody in the crowd is saying, how in the world is this guy still standing after he's eaten a whole can of fresh Copenhagen? And you know there's some kind of deception going on. And what has happened before the, the, the cowboy chef has come out on stage, he's, he's steamed off the label. He's opened the can. He's emptied the contents out. He's crushed up just the tops of the Oreo cookies real finely. So finely that they look a lot like Copenhagen. Packed them back in the can, put the label back on. And then he's brought his can out. And what you know now is that what's advertised on the outside isn't really the same thing as what's on the inside. What's advertised on the outside isn't the same thing as what's on the inside. There was a disconnect like this in Jeremiah's time. When Jeremiah came to the church, he he saw a lot of what was advertised. But the Lord was telling him, Jeremiah, don't be fooled. A lot of what gets advertised, a lot of what you see inside the church, inside the temple, it's not the same. Because I see the inside, and the inside for my people, it's not matching the same thing as what's advertised on the label. Eugene Peterson says it this way in part of the quote that's on your front of your bulletin. The people stood in the right place. They spoke the current religious cliches. They were in the right place. They said the right words, but they themselves were not right. So God calls Jeremiah to go to the temple and deliver in chapter 7, what scholars know as the Temple Sermon. Probably this sermon was delivered at one of the Jewish festivals so that Jeremiah could have, or God could have, the widest audience of people coming to the Temple on that day. And he gives Jeremiah some very specific instructions. He says, Jeremiah, I don't want you to go to the pulpit in the Temple today. I want you to just stand at the front door. Take your sermon out of the pulpit, and as the people are coming in in this great festival with all the right smiles and all the right externals, I want you to stand and I want you to look at my people as they're coming into my place of worship, as they're coming into the temple, and that is where I want you to deliver this sermon. And so Jeremiah stands at the entrance of the temple and he says something like this. The Lord sees you. He sees that your ways do not match your words. He sees that you've been using people to your own advantage. He sees that you've been spending the week really just serving yourself. 
He sees that you've been busy chasing other gods, self-importance, materialism, pleasure. Verse 8, behold, God says, I myself, I have seen it. Don't be deceived, people of Judah. Don't, Don't be fooled that you can sort of just live your week like that and then you can gather here on this one day and you can sing the praise chorus over and over and over again. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. You can't just sing that and recite it no matter how many times and think that you're in a safe place. You're not in a safe place. You're not in a safe place because I can see inside and what you're advertising on the outside is not the same as what's on the inside of your lives. Now, I think it's helpful to, at this moment, try to appreciate Jeremiah's assignment here. And I, and I tried to do that. I tried to think of what it must have been like to be this called prophet, Jeremiah. And I thought, well, okay, it's Easter Sunday. And everyone's ready to put on their nicest clothes and their biggest smile. They, they've been working on their dish for the potluck and they're ready to come to Christ Community Church on Easter Sunday. And I wake up that morning with this sense from the Lord that he's saying, Paul, skip the sermon that you had planned. No pulpit this morning. No sermon prep. I'm just going to give you this sermon, and I don't want you to deliver it from here. I want you to stand at the entrance, and as everybody comes in, this is what I want you to tell those people, my people, as they come in. I want you to speak for me, and I want you to look at them in the face, and I want you to say this, the Lord sees you. He he sees what you've been doing all week long. He sees that your words haven't matched up with your ways. You've been busy chasing after the other gods in the culture. Self-importance. Popularity. Materialism. Pleasure. You just can't come here once a week and stand here and sing, sing for joy, sing for joy, sing for joy over and over and over again and think that you're in a safe place. You are not in a safe place because I can see that what you're advertising on the outside of your life is not the same as what I can see in the inside of your life. How would you like to have that assignment? I mean, I've read a lot of church growth books. And I haven't, ha- I haven't read one of them that has suggested that's a great way to really grow your church. Move your pulpit into the entrance area and just deliver that sermon as people come in. That doesn't tend to bring them back week after week. 
And But that is the assignment that Jeremiah the prophet has because the people were fooling themselves. They thought they were fooling everyone else. They thought even maybe were fooling God. And Jeremiah has to come in like a hammer and say, you're not fooling anybody. Jeremiah may not know, but the Lord knows who's got the internals that match the externals. And the people are being deceived and they're being deceptive. It wasn't really a popular approach approach to preaching in Jeremiah's day. If you would just turn briefly to Jeremiah chapter 26... Jeremiah, when you read through the book, is not in a sequential order. So in Jeremiah 26, there's actually a parallel account to this temple sermon. And so in Jeremiah 26, verse 2, it says this, Thus says the Lord, now he's talking to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. So Jeremiah delivers the sermon, verses 3 through 6, and then in verse 7, here's the congregational response. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of Jeremiah saying, you shall die. Now I'm actually hoping for a little kinder response after the sermon today. I'm just a messenger. We're trying to understand what Jeremiah is getting at here. And so no need to put the pastor to death just this day. There's a lot to learn in these chapters. We're not going to, or these verses, we're not going to get to them all, but I want to just get to these two things this morning. I want to focus on two words, deception. It's mentioned twice in verse 4 and again in verse 8. And I want to ask this question. What is, what is the deception that the church-going people have bought into? They, they're, they're either being deceived or they're deceiving themselves. What is that deception? And then the word reformation, which probably appears, does appear in the NIV and the, in the ESV. It says amend, reform, turn around, verse 3, verse 5. Jeremiah then, once he points out the deception, he's going to call his people to move in a different direction. First, the deception. Verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. Or verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words. Look at verse 9 for a moment. Look at this list. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you swear falsely, you go after other gods. Where, where does this list appear in another place in the Bible? Where, why does this list sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds a lot like part of the Ten Commandments. Things that, gosh, this is, this is the law of God, and yet the people of God, the church-going people, apparently are spending a good bit of their week breaking the laws of God. 
breaking their relationship with God. They're, they're out during the week just sort of living according to their own desires. They're, they're doing whatever it is they want to do. And then they come back into the temple. They, they sing some praise choruses. They recite the Lord's Prayer. And then they say, we're going to be delivered. The people, the church-going people, had bought into a lie. The, the lie was, if you just fulfill the religious obligations. You know, as long as you show up once a week, you say the right words, you know, then, then you could live the rest of your life however you wanted to live it. Just keep coming back most Sundays, singing the praise courses. Maybe even if you have your eyes closed sometimes, that helps. But then as you leave, you can kind of live the way you want to live. And God's still going to be obligated to save you because you've said the right things. The temple was sort of reduced to a, a place of superstition. And the magic words were, this is the temple. This is the temple. This is the temple. And as long as you were in the temple and you were saying the right things, it was much more like just a magic spell. And God was going to come in just because you were able to say it the right way. Now, this sounds ridiculous when you look at it into Jeremiah, but I want, before we're too hard on these people, I want us to recognize how easy it is to do the same thing in our century. I've been baptized. I've been baptized. I've been baptized. I'm taking communion. I'm taking communion. I'm taking communion. I said the sinner's prayer. I said the sinner's prayer. I said the sinner's prayer. You have the external trappings. None of those things are bad, but you're hanging on to those things as if those things, like a magic spell, are going to save your soul. And you live your life really apart from those things. And God is warning the people in Judah as He is warning us today. That's not going to do it. You're not in a safe place if you're just hanging on to a formula. Like it's some kind of magic spell that's going to now obligate God to do what you want Him to do. Uh, several months ago, gosh, more than, uh, more than a year I was walking alongside of a man who was dying. And I didn't meet him until later in his life. And from what I could tell from conversations uh, with other people and my own conversations with this man, I didn't have any real reason to believe that he was a Christian. He died. I was a part, being, I was a part of his funeral. And then several months later, after his death... One of his relatives that I got to meet during this process called me and said, you know, when we were going through his belongings, we found this certificate from a a vacation Bible school or a, a Sunday school class. It was dated when he was a young boy, probably 10 or so, had his name on it and said, on this date, this man committed his life to Christ. 
Sixty years goes by and he dies. His relative finds the paper and she calls me and she says, Now I have peace in my heart. Does that give you peace in your heart? Why does it at least make you a little nervous? Because it feels like, I'm not the judge of this man's soul, but it just feels like it's being waved like a piece of paper, like a, a magic spell, that just because at one distant point you said the right words, then God is obligated to do something. Like it's a magic spell. I'm in the temple. I'm in the temple. I'm in the temple. I've been baptized. I I said that prayer. And God is looking at his people. And Jeremiah, I believe, pleading with his people saying, you know what? It could all be a game. You could be fooling yourself. Don't just look at these external things that you do. Look down into your heart. Look at the way in which you're walking. Don't just examine your words. Examine your whole life. I'm not interested in just lip service. I want your whole life to be serving me. And these people's lives did not match up with what was coming out of their lips. And there may be some of us who are waving an old prayer. From 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. But the evidence is very scant since that time. Jeremiah the prophet, he's warning the people. He's helping us today to think about ourselves. Is what's advertised on the outside of you the same as what God sees on the inside you see Jeremiah stands there and people are pouring in regulars and visitors some of them certainly were followers of God he doesn't all he doesn't know he doesn't know everybody who's being deceptive and who's not he's just pleading to the people And I'm I'm looking out here. I don't know. I can't tell. But, But I'm asking you, consider. Is the packaging that you bring in here today, does it represent in some measure what's actually inside your heart and your soul? Are your your words could they be backed up by your ways? We don't have really time to look at this example, but if you do this later today, it's a great practice either today or this week. Go back and look at Shiloh, 1 Samuel 1 through 4. Go ahead and write that down. 1 Samuel 1 through 4. You just want to go back and read these four chapters. Very fascinating chapters. And God is helping his people to say, look, in case you don't get it, 
My glory can be removed from this temple. Just go back to Shiloh. And everybody would have understood what he was talking about. Because God appeared at Shiloh. God, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was at Shiloh. When um, Hannah came, remember Hannah couldn't have a child. She came to Shiloh. And she met the priest there named Eli. And Eli prayed for Hannah. And Hannah had a son named Samuel. And when Samuel grew up, he came back to Shiloh and he ministered at Shiloh. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. God's glory came down at Shiloh. And in the Old Testament, the word glory means weight. There was a weightiness, there was a a substance, a solidness to God's presence at Shiloh. And at some time later, there was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And Eli's two oldest sons, who had been sleeping around with the people in the temple, who had been stealing from the people of the temple, even though they were exercising their role as priests, they were being deceptive. And they started losing a battle against the Philistines. And they went back and said, we've got to get the Ark of the Covenant. If we get the Ark of the Covenant out there, we're going to win the battle. And they get the Ark of the Covenant out there and they lose the battle. The Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. They kill Eli's two sons. And somebody runs back and tells Eli in Shiloh, your sons have been killed and the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. He falls out of his chair, breaks his neck. And he dies. That news gets immediately reported to one of the wives of the sons who had died. She gives birth. She was pregnant. She gives birth immediately. She's dying. In her last breath, she says, name him Ichabod, which means... The glory has departed. And she dies. That's the end of chapter 4. The weight of God's glory is gone. It's removed. And God is saying to his people through Jeremiah, you may have seen me here. You may have felt me here. But I'm looking for people who are walking in my way. And if they are not walking in my way, no matter what the trappings they have, I can get up and move somewhere else. And so it's a powerful warning for us to think about whether we're really being deceptive The second word I wanted to look at was reformation or amend, as it's put in our text here this morning. Jeremiah isn't just saying examine your ways. He's saying once you've examined them, if you're going the wrong way, by all means, go in a different direction. If you if you're sitting here this morning, you say, yes, I am going in that direction and I no longer want to go in that direction. Then Jeremiah is saying, great, that's the first step. Now turn around and go in a different direction. Reform your life. And I found this this solution that he gives fascinating. 
I mean, if you didn't know what he might say, since we've already read it, we know what he said. But if, if, if you say, okay, I need to reform my ways. How can I begin to walk in the right way? Here's what Jeremiah says. Execute social justice. Don't oppress the sojourner or the foreigner or the alien or the fatherless. You've got to take care of the orphan or the widow. That's a, that'll give you a pretty good start. Isn't that interesting? He says, you know, you know, when you see a foreigner amongst you, or you see somebody who's an orphan, or you, you see a widow, I want you to take special notice of those people. And that call is not unique. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Take your evil deeds out of my stock, sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Matthew 25, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you sick or in prison? I tell you the truth, Jesus said, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers, you did for me. James 1.27, which Carl read, religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. You see, Jeremiah's message here is a is can be strung through the whole Bible. And essentially God is saying to the church, I want you to pay attention to these kinds of people. I want you to seek them out in your society. I want you to notice who they are. I want you to know they have no weight These are people who have no pull. These are people who who cannot give you any particular advantage. They're going to be asking from you all of the time. These are the people who are at the very bottom of your society. I'm calling on the church to get up underneath these kinds of people and empty out your resources on them. Your time, your talents, your emotions, your relational ability, your money. These kinds of people, these people at the very bottom, the very margins of society, the kinds of people who cannot give back to you, you now must go get up underneath those people. Why would that bring reformation to you? I mean, that's a helpful thing to do. Lots of people would think that's a great idea. But God is suggesting it as a way or a means by which brings reformation to your soul. It begins to turn you back around and move you in the right direction. Why is that? What what would intimate involvement with and emptying your life out for a foreigner, someone displaced from your home, from their home, 
or an orphan, someone who doesn't have a father, or a widow, somebody who's lost their lover, how would being involved with those people, what would it help you see? And you know that you already know the answer, do you not? Helping those people are going to help you see the massive gift of the gospel in your life. You're the foreigner. You're the one that has no home. You're the one without a father. You're the one disconnected from your lover. And he, at infinite cost to himself, has come down in the person of Christ. And he has emptied himself onto you. He has gotten up underneath you. And you cannot give anything back of value. You are only going to be asking of him. And he has come and said, I'm going to pick you up and I am going to take you at infinite cost to myself all the way home. And when you get involved with those kinds of people, then you begin to reflect on what He's done for you. And if you're not involved with those kinds of people, then you get bigger. You get important. You have value all by yourself and God gets reduced. That's how it becomes reformation in your life. And we read the verse here in Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. If you're a believer here, you, you, you know the grace, don't you? You haven't forgot, have you? I mean, you haven't taken, taken it, advantage of it and just sort of put it on the shelf and say, I'll get back to the grace when I, when I get real old. You, you're remembering it every day, are you not? That you don't really have any value. You're like a, a hollow person until the person who created you comes into your life and gives you substance and value and weight. You remember that grace, don't you? Can, can you take some of your weightiness some of God's glory in your soul? And can you go back out to people who have no weight in our society? Can you get up underneath those people? People displaced. People without a home. People without a father. If you know that grace, then Jeremiah... God is commanding us through Jeremiah to go and give your life away in that kind of measure. That's the call. You see, if you're just living for yourself out there week after week, how are you going to get your eyes off yourself? You're going to have to get your eyes onto something else. Someone else. 
And you need some sort of physical reminder and God's saying, okay, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. You get in touch with those people and then they begin to get you in touch with the condition of your own soul before Christ came and picked you up and brought you all the way home. On the night Jesus was betrayed, at infinite cost to himself, he's asking you, you come. If you're hungry, you come. If you're thirsty, I've got living water. You're hollow without me. Come, take, eat. Be filled. Be a solid person. And I'm going to give you, once you've taken and eaten, I'm going to give you a new command. Because you have an eternal inheritance that outshines the sun. Because you have that internal inheritance, now you, this is the new command, you love one another. And this is how I want you to love one another. Just as I've loved you. I want you to empty yourself out. Time, relationships, emotions, money. To people who I can't give you anything back. To people who are not going to advantage you. To people that in the bo- in the in society are at the bottom. Because I want you to see yourself. I want you to see how far I've come. I want you to see how much that I love you. And so he pours himself out. He empties himself into your soul. So you might have his glory, his weight. And then as you go out during your week, you can shine like a star in the universe, holding out the word of life. Heavenly Father, we, we see this. This is not insignificant. This bread, this juice, this moment of communion. We, we are coming forward. I'm looking at every person coming forward. I'm, I'm with my eyes asking them, Is the packaging you bring today the same as as what's on the inside? If not, beg for forgiveness. Plead for people to come into your life and you to walk into their lives that you can give your life away to and begin to focus on Christ. Let no one come up here feeling like this communion is saving them. Any more than the people in Jeremiah's day thought the temple was. But to be reminded of the one who emptied himself. He emptied his glory out onto us that we might live forever with you. In Jesus name. Amen.